Welcome to the Golden Age of Islam podcast. When we think of Islam today, what sort of images pop to mind? It's typically of people doing things in unison. We see thousands of people circulating around the Kaaba on the Hajj. We see lines of people in the mosque praying together in unison, all facing the same directions. And these images have a lot of truth behind them. As we've talked about, Islam has always been a communal faith, the idea of doing things together, not strictly as an individual religion. As we've also discussed, Islam began not just as a religion, but as a state, an empire, a government with laws. And Islamic law would develop into one of the most elaborate and comprehensive systems in history. So all these images of order and uniformity definitely do have a place in Islam. But if you've been following this podcast so far, you might say, wait a minute, you're missing out on a whole nother aspect of Islam. And you'd be correct. Up to this point, we have not talked about what is sometimes referred to as folk Islam or mystic Islam, or more properly, the practice of Sufism. This is a very different aspect of Islam, which conjures up different images. Images of the whirling dervishes, say, spinning and reciting the name of God and going into an almost trance-like state. Well, this is also an important aspect of Islam, and we can't give an honest history of Islam without including it. So that is our subject today. So please stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Well, you may or may not have heard of Sufism before, or the people who practice it, Sufis, but this is really a wide umbrella term for a lot of activities, all of which have a common factor, and that is the goal of an individual worshiper trying to make a personal union with God. It is sometimes referred to as the emotional side of Islamic practice. So when Islam is portrayed as being about rules and conformity, there is that aspect of it. But we have to always include this aspect, which is very different. Here, we see something that looks very similar to practices we have in, say, Christianity, as evidence in the Charismatic Movement, or Pentecostalism. And we even see some practices among Sufis that look very similar to what we imagine monks doing in other religions. Now, it's often pointed out that Islam doesn't have monks or saints or mystic healers like you find in other religions. And that is true. But if we look closer, we do find people who fill essentially similar functions in Islam. And the bottom line we're going to see here is that people look to a religion to fill a variety of basic social needs. And even though their theologies may be very different, we're going to find religions filling a lot of these same basic functions. And that is definitely true of what we're calling Sufism today. So Sufism is kind of a difficult thing for outside observers to place. This is not a sect or a faction of Islam. It's 
not like we're talking Sunni, Shia, and Sufis. In fact, there are Sunni Sufis, there are Shiite Sufis. We find Sufis from every school of law, and so on. So a way of thinking of this is this is yet another dimension of the religion. Let's say if Islam were a polygon, this is yet another face to that polygon. So some of the leading figures of Sufism have been leaders of schools of law or philosophy, for example. But it does have its own organizations and leaders, which sometimes have close ties with other organizations, but sometimes not. So when we look at a mature Muslim, we could say this is someone who follows a specific school of law, like Maliki or Hanafi, say. It's someone who adheres to a certain Islamic theology, which for a while, Mutazilism was the big one. Uh, that would become heretical, but it'll be replaced by Asharism, which we'll talk about in the future. And has a Sufi brotherhood. And in fact, we find that some of the foremost institutions of Islamic law also have close ties to Sufi brotherhoods. So think of this again as another dimension of Islam, one that stresses the personal, emotional side of attachment to God. say when Sufism begins. And any history of Sufism usually stresses the spiritual connections. And while these are important, what we want to talk about here is the actual historical development. When did people begin identifying themselves as Sufis? And when did solid organizations begin to emerge? It's much harder to say when individual practices began to morph into organizations. Because from the very first generation of Islam, we have accounts of very pious and devout Muslims who dedicated themselves to constant prayer, to rejection of worldly goods, to focusing on the love and the goodness of God. Now, these people would eventually become known as Zahids, and Zahid means one who practices something called Zuhud. Zuhud is essentially a form of self-denial. Eventually, these people would gather followings of those who admired them and wanted to emulate them, and these followings would develop into what will become the Sufi Brotherhoods. When the term Sufi actually began to be used is not clear, but we know it was definitely in use at the time the Abbasid Caliphate was formed, which is about a hundred years into Islamic history. The word Suf means wool. And this refers to the woolen garments that some of these Zahids wore. Now, the idea here was that wearing wool was a form of self-denial or humility. That may seem a little bit strange to us today, but what we're not talking about is, let's say, the handmade Aran sweaters that you buy for $100. Instead, wool had been considered a lower-class garment. And the reason is that one of the major developments in human history was switching from wool garments to cotton and linen fabrics. And this is actually responsible for a major decline in the prevalence of disease, particularly in Europe. The reason for this is a bit unpleasant. Again, we're not talking about fancy sweaters that you send off to the laundry. 
The wool clothes that were originally made were scratchy and itchy. They caused rashes and abrasions. I mean, if you've ever felt the wool on an actual sheep, it's kind of uh, rough. And so these things weren't washed very often. And so because they were so scratchy, they tended to get filthy and covered with blood and sweat and then mold. And this became a way of spreading disease. Cotton, as you know, is much easier to clean doesn't scratch as much. So while this is a pretty disgusting image, the idea of wearing wool was a form of looking and feeling downcast. So this was apparently applied as a derogatory term to certain people who practice this. But as often happens with people who are very devoted, what is applied as a derogatory term starts to become an honorific. So this slang eventually was generalized to refer to all Sufis, and it's still used today even for those who don't wear wool. Well, one of the first Sufis we actually know by name is a person that we've mentioned before, and this is Hassan al-Basri, who you may remember was one of the early Qadariya. In Qadariya, these were the believers in free will, and eventually from their circle, the Mutazilites developed. As we said then, Hassan was involved in a lot of different things. So he's best known, actually, for his teachings on Zuhd. And he taught about true understanding of God in the Quran. Now what we say by true understanding, we're not talking about a head knowledge. He had a lot of knowledge. These are people who had memorized the Quran, and they knew a lot about it. What we're talking about here is, say, heart knowledge, being able to actually identify with this. Well, Hassan developed the idea that the way to do this was to search one's own soul. And this was called Ilm al-Batan. And that is essentially knowledge or the science of the interior. The Batan here being the interior of yourself. So they spent a lot of time trying to perceive the true nature of God and the depth of God's love through contemplation on the love of God and his majesty. Okay, another important early practitioner was a man named Bayezid Bistami. That's a Persian-sounding name, and he was from northern Persia. And he begins something that would become a characteristic of Sufis, and this is he's not concerned about social convention. The idea is he wants the approval of God, he wants the love of God, and he's not concerned with the approval of people on earth. Well, to prove this, he would do things that would shock social convention. Now, he was the first Zahid we know to talk about and supposedly achieve something called fana. Now, fana means emptiness in Arabic, and it's often used today to refer to like an empty piece of land, like a square or a public park or something. But what he's talking about is the total loss of the self, meaning you lose your human, earthly, flawed self, and you become spiritually absorbed into God. Now, he was famous for making what sounded like pretty blasphemous utterances. And what he would do, for example, is replace the name of God with himself. So he would chant things like, there is no God but me, instead of there is no God but God, or glory to me and my majesty. Well, obviously, this sounds pretty blasphemous, and if you take him at face value, uh, this is very blasphemous, and some people definitely saw it that way. But what uh, Biazid was trying to say was that he himself, Mr. Bustami, had disappeared, 
and he had become so united with God that God was talking through him. So when he says there's no God but me, that means there's no God but God, but I cannot refer to God as a separate being, and this was one of his doctrines. He said he couldn't praise God as a separate individual because now God was part of him, or rather he was part of God. Now this, you may think, would have got him in a lot of trouble, and it did, but the thing that really got Beazid in trouble is he specifically changed the word that he used to refer to love for God. Now, typically, and even today, that word is hub, as in uheb, I love. And this is one of the first words that any Arabic student learns, right? I like or I love, uheb. Well, what he used was another term for love, which is ashik, which we get the word ashik from. Now, this refers to a passionate, romantic, carnal type of love, and that's what he would use. Now, again, this is something that sounds very blasphemous, but his idea, again, was intimacy. I am so bonded with God. We are like one soul. And this would eventually get him in trouble. But nonetheless, many people wanted to know how to achieve this state. As in any religion, one of the reasons people come to it is because they want to have a feeling of belonging. They wanted to touch the, the Almighty. So the early mystics began teaching about a path that one had to follow to achieve this level of self-denial. The Arabic word for path is tariqah. And it's the same word we use today for a highway or a road. And so the people gathered around to learn the tariqah. This would eventually become the name for a Sufi brotherhood, and it's very often translated in English as a lodge, meaning a social group like the Elks Lodge or something. But realize it actually refers to the path. So they were gathering not just to feel good, but to follow this path towards union with God. And so Sufi tariqas, once they became accepted, they became a very important part of Islamic society next to the mosque and the schools of law. One of the first people to put this into writing was a man called Harith al-Muhasibi, who founded a school of Islamic philosophy in Baghdad in the first century of the Abbasid Caliphate. But what he is most famous for is the practice of muhasaba, and this is where his name comes from. Muhasabi is not the name he was born with, but like many Sufis, he takes on a name that reflects something of his beliefs or his practices. So the word muhasaba means accounting, and it is the exact same word we use for financial accounting today. Uh, an accountant, like a CPA, is a muhasib. Well, what he's talking about here is not financial accounting, but taking an inventory of the self, examining one's own piety, one's own faith, examining the imperfections in the self. And by doing that, that is how we come closer to God. He has an idea that will be really adopted by most Sufis after him, that we are born with the right attitude and the right image of God, but by living on this earth we gather a lot of impurities and we have to learn to clear those away. Well, he was an extensive writer. He wrote over 200 books, and they covered a, a wide range of things. He did write about theology, he wrote about philosophy, but primarily he wrote about tasawwuf, 
which is Sufism, and this is the term that will be most commonly used for it. Now, you may recognize tasawwuf comes from the same root as suf, meaning wool, and tasawwuf is the reflexive verb form, meaning to do it to yourself. So when he's talking about tasawwuf, it's essentially how to make yourself a Sufi. who were very powerful at this time, that school of Islamic theology we talked about, Muhasabi did not believe that reason and logic could lead you to ultimate truth. He believed that God could only be understood through experience, which is the key to Sufism. The idea of Sufism is experiencing the love of God, the majesty of God personally. You could study all day long, you could have all the theology and head knowledge about God and his mercy and his creation, but that wasn't true understanding. Now, if you remember, the rationalists, specifically the Mutazilites, they believed that God gave us a higher capacity, but that capacity was reason in the intellect, and that, as they said, any sane adult who applied his or her reasoning could learn ultimate truth. They thought you didn't even need revelation. You could use your brain. So this is exactly the opposite of what the Sufis are preaching. So in dozens of books that he writes, Mohasabi talks about the process of examining oneself. And he uses the term nafs, which is the correct word for self, in looking for all types of imperfections and deceptions we have, egotism, pride, lust, love of worldly things, lust for power, anything that can distract you from this pursuit of God. Now, if what he's talking about sounds a lot like psychology, in a sense it is, and he is sometimes identified as an early psychologist. In fact, what he's talking about, ilm nafs, which is literally the science of the self, is the word that is used for psychology today. Now, of course, modern psychology and this sort of spiritual inventory he's talking about are going to diverge, and they're going to become different things. But when we look at what's going on back in the Abbasid period, what he's doing is a kind of early psychology. It just has a different purpose. During the third Muslim century, the 800s, Sufism became extremely popular in the Abbasid Empire. It was originally concentrated in cities, particularly Baghdad and Basra, and most of its practitioners were middle-class artisans and skilled workers. So while rationalism and kalam were appealing to the elite, this was offering a more accessible, less academic approach to God, which appealed to sort of the next level down, the middle class. Well, Sufi doctrines would proliferate at this time, and there would be a whole body of theories, at least as robust as those of philosophy. So even though the idea is about a personal, emotional experience 
of God and not head knowledge, they still developed a lot of theories and wrote hundreds of books on how this actually happened. The difference is how one approaches this. Uh, in Sufism, you approach it through different experiences rather than studying different arguments. For example, we'll look at a few of these theorists and see how they contributed to it. One of the most important was Abu Sayyid al-Kharaz. He was a prominent Sufi of the 800s, and he elaborated a path to intimacy with God that has 14 levels, and he identifies seven different types of seekers on those levels. Now, he says the only one who can actually achieve this final union is someone who abandons all pretense of intellect. So that's a 180 approach out from what the rationalists and the Mutazilites are doing. But we see, even despite the fact that he's abandoning all pretense of intellect, he's still developing a very elaborate, complex system. Another important Sufi is Abu Ahmed al-Nuri, and he thoroughly rejected the idea of trying to appreciate God through the intellect. And he developed the term of the heart, the qalb. Now, obviously, he's not talking about the organ that pumps blood, but he uses this as his term for the place where God has placed true knowledge and true light. But this is something that has been clouded with imperfections in our earthly life. So Nuri elaborated a doctrine of the heart, which again gets fairly complex. Uh, his vision of the heart has four different layers through which one has to progress, ultimately reaching the deepest level of the heart, which is where we can have union with God. He comes up with an important innovation he believes that the way to achieve this consciousness is through repetition of the name of God, or dhikr, which means remembrance. This is a key part of Sufi practice today. If you watch any sort of Sufi rituals, and there's plenty of videos on YouTube that you can see, this is something you will see people doing over and over again, is chanting or reciting the name of God, Allah, Allah and they seem to almost go into a trance with doing it. It could be meditating and using this as a mantra. We see people dancing and doing this. We see this through music, but it's focusing on God to the point where you become immersed in Him. This will later be developed into different types of art, poetry, which become important parts of Sufi practice. But that's not all. Anuri also includes listening, or sama. In this case, this involves listening to the name of God or poetry about God, anything that gives us a sense of the majesty of God. And so some of the greatest poets in Arabic, or even in, in the world, really, are Sufi poets. Some of these we know in the West, like Rumi. Uh, Rumi is famous for writing love poetry, but if we look at his poetry, it's this ecstatic love poetry about love for God, pure love. And it's very different than uh, some of the things his contemporaries are writing, like Abu Nuwas, who's writing, you might call it, love poetry. It's more like sex poetry. This is talking about the pure, chaste love of being united with God. Again, we're talking about something that is very different than what the Mutazilites are trying to do, understanding God through knowledge and reason. Uh, another very important 
Sufi of this time was Abu al-Qasim al-Junaid. And he begins as a, a very learned jurist. He was a master of Islamic law, but he went on to extensively develop doctrines of Sufism. And so they're not completely separate. Yes, he he was an expert in Islamic law, but also in Sufism as well. And again, these are two different complementary aspects of the religion. He develops the idea of the fana, the emptiness, losing oneself even further. And like his previous counterparts, he believed that there were certain illusions that we had, that we had to get rid of. But he specifically said that the biggest of these lies that people are taught is Anna. Now, this is one of the first words that any Arabic student learns, and you may recognize it. Anna means I, like when you learn to say I am. Well, this is one of the first words any child learns. But to him, this is the biggest lie, the idea that there is a separate me, Anna, that's separate from God. We were never meant to be this way. We were meant to be one with God and with our fellow believers. And buying into this idea of an independent self is the biggest lie. And you have to lose this illusion of the self. Well, if you're at all familiar with Zen Buddhism, this may strike you as amazingly close to what Zen teaches, and even other systems of meditation, Buddhist meditation, yogic meditations, use the same idea. But the, the idea of the self being an illusion and losing the illusion of the self is core to Zen Buddhism. And the practices that are used to achieve this are very similar. Now, what's amazing here is uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find two religions that have more different basic theologies than Zen and Islam. Islam being pure, absolute monotheism, which believes in a very real, historical, personal God, and Zen that essentially believes there's nothing out there, that the universe is all one big thing that you're trying to achieve union with. But even though their theologies are so different, really their goals are similar and their practices are very similar. And this just underscores the fact of how religions that like to see each other as very different are fulfilling a lot of the same human needs. So in a sense, we're a lot more similar than we think. Well, where Junaid really begins to differ from his predecessors is that he believes only a few people would ever achieve this level of intimacy. Well, the others knew this as well. I mean, they could see not many people were actually joining their circles and going through all the hard work and investment of time it took to achieve this level. But Junaid felt that these people had a very special responsibility. So where others thought that achieving this level of union with God was your ultimate goal, and once you made it, that was your reward. Junaid definitely believed that once someone reached this level, they would be returned back to normal consciousness, and they would be in a state of what was called sahwa, which is often translated as sobriety, but it really means being purged, cleansed, and it means, of course, being cleansed of all those negative earthly distractions. Once that happened, though, one was not just to enjoy it, but one had a responsibility to lead others. Now, if that strikes another parallel with Buddhism, 
uh, it's definitely very similar. And again, they're coming from very different theologies, but essentially what they're teaching is very similar. If you were living back in the first or second Islamic centuries, you probably wouldn't have bet that the Sufis would become such an integral part of Islamic society as they do. For one thing, they were on the margins. They were separating themselves from society. But they will become far more influential than Islamic philosophy and science. So during this first and second century, the Abbasid Golden Age, we look at the flourishing of the sciences and philosophy, and we have these people kind of on the margins who are practicing Sufism. It's hard to imagine that things would really switch and that Sufism would become an integral part of Islamic society, and unfortunately Islamic science would decline. And this was certainly not an inevitable outcome. If we look right from the very beginning, the Umayyads, the first dynasty, clearly considered the early Zahids to be enemies, with their talk of renouncing earthly wealth, earthly power, and living piously. This was seen as a criticism of the Umayyads. If you remember, the major criticism of them was that they were living just like regular kings. They were like any other kingdom. And in fact, a lot of the Sufi criticism was directed right at the Umayyad leadership. Well, Hassan al-Basri, he was not killed by the regime, but many of his counterparts were. However, when the Abbasid revolution came along, this was a boon for the Sufis. Uh, for one thing, the Sufis were based in areas that were traditional Abbasid power centers. Beyond that, Sufism provided something of a bridge to the Shia, it's hard to remember, but in the early Abbasid period, particularly during the revolution and during the reign of the most powerful caliph, al-Ma'mun, there was a decided attempt to reconcile with the proto-Shia. And remember, Sunni and Shia hadn't formally split at this point, and so there was a thought that they could be brought back together again. Well, the mysticism and the personal connection of Sufism had some parallels to Shiite theology, which, as we've seen, is based on the idea of special, spiritually gifted individuals who serve as guides. So this was seen as somewhat of a compromise, somewhat of a way of bridging the gap between the future Sunnis and the future Sufis. Well, as it would turn out, it would flourish, and we'd end up with both Sunni Sufis and Shiite Sufis, and the split would continue. The alliances, though, that the Sufis formed turned out to be a bit surprising, and if you were back then, you probably wouldn't have predicted these. But as we've discussed, the big divide that was going on in the Abbasid Caliphate was between the rationalists, or the Mutazilites on one side, who had the support of most of the Caliphs, particularly al-Ma'mun, who loved them, and the support of the scientific philosophical elite. It, during the time of the great caliphs like al-Ma'mun and Harun al-Rashid, the Mutazilites were definitely in the, in the ascendant. On the other side, there were the traditionalists, the scholars of Hadith, which were sometimes called the Sunnites, but who will develop into mainstream Sunni doctrine. 
Well, the Sufis, again, are a, a separate element here. And we might not expect that people who practice this sort of amorphous, mystical, personal union with God would ally with the strict legal schools. But it turns out that they do. And there are several reasons for this. First off, the Sufis have a strong opposition to rationalism. And they reject the whole idea that rationalism can lead one to understanding God. So that puts them at odds with the practitioners of Kalam, and particularly the Mutazilites. So they have an alliance of convenience, let's say, with the traditionalists. And this will get stronger because Sufis also tend to rely on Hadith as well. Now they're looking at slightly different Hadith, but the idea of using Hadith in reports from the, the early centuries, particularly the companions of the Prophet, to emulate previous traditions and previous generations, this fits well with the traditionalists. Well, as this alliance grows stronger, as any alliance, the doctrine is going to fill in to support it. So one of the most famous pieces of evidence that is used to support the validity of Sufism and its place in Islam is something called Hadith Jibril, or the Hadith of Gabriel, referring to the angel Gabriel. And this is usually one of the first things you see mentioned in any study of the origins of Sufism. It's a very well-known hadith and one that's quoted very often. And in this hadith, the angel Gabriel appears to the Prophet Muhammad in disguise and essentially quizzes him on foundations of the religion, which of course the Prophet gets all the answers correct, and so these stand as teachings for later generations. But Jibril asks Muhammad three questions, and these are seen as defining the three levels of the religion. The first he asks him is, what is faith, or iman? as it's called in Arabic. Faith, he says, is to believe in God, his angels, his messengers, and that you will meet him in the resurrection. And so these become the key beliefs. So faith, this first level, these are the things you have to believe in, right? the things you have to ascribe to. The next level is what is Islam? Now this may sound a bit confusing because, of course, Islam is used as a name for the entire religion. But remember that word means submission. So specifically he's asking, what is submission? Meaning, like, what is obedience? So the first level is, what do you have to believe? The second level is, what do you have to do? Well, the Prophet's answer establishes what we know of as the five pillars of Islam. And you have probably heard these before. But this is where they come from, where they are laid out in a very clear form. Islam is that you witness there, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God, that you establish the prayer, that you give the zakat, which is the, the alms, the charity, you fast during Ramadan, and you perform the hajj to the Kaaba if you are able. The last question that he asks is, what is ishan, which means perfection? And the answer is to worship God as if you could see him yourself. So we have the three levels of religion. First, what you have to believe. Next, what you have to do. But then the third level is going beyond the minimums, the things that you have to do to achieving this 
perfection, this idea that you can see God as if he's right there with you. And this is seen as what Sufism is about. And so this is why it fits in very well. So in the first level, Iman, the faith, this is where we have theology, because it's the things you have to believe. And although the Hadith just names off some very basic concepts, elaborating on, okay, what is God and his messengers and the resurrection, this, of course, develops into volumes and volumes of theology. Then we have Islam. This is the practices. And again, this is where we have Islamic law. But this last level, Ishan, the perfection of the faith, this is where Sufism is coming in. This hadith very neatly puts these three aspects together. And so a mature Sunni Muslim, even today, is said to follow one of the main schools of law, that's your the Islam portion, one of the orthodox schools of philosophy, that's your, your iman, your, your basic theology and beliefs, and to belong to a Sufi order. Now, these are not just separate components that you pick whichever one you like, like items on the dollar menu. There develop some strong relationships between them. So as we've seen, the Mutazilite school of theology is not going to mesh very well with Sufism. But as we've seen, Mutazilism is eventually going to fall, it's going to become heresy, and it will be replaced with other schools of theology, particularly the Ashari in in Sunnism, which we'll discuss later. But Ashari fits much better with Sufism. It allows for things we can't understand, that there is knowledge, spiritual knowledge, that you can't get from strict rationalism. So they fit very well together. The schools of law and their relationship to Sufism gets a bit trickier. As we mentioned, the Hanafi school of law was closely allied with the Mutazilites, and so that made them opposed to Sufism at the beginning. But when the Mutazilites were purged, the Hanafis were very quick. Rather than going down with them, they switched their allegiance, and therefore they became amenable to Sufism. And today, the regions in which Hanafism is popular, particularly in the eastern part of the Islamic world, uh, Sufism has very strong roots, so they're able to work that out. The Malikis and Shafis generally do very well with Sufism, particularly the Malikis, because if we remember the characteristic of the Malachite school of jurisprudence is that they placed a heavy reliance on the example of the early Muslim community, the first generation of Muslims. What did they do? Well, Sufism will also place a very important emphasis on the practice of early Muslims. And this is the idea what began with the circles. People would come to someone like Hassan al-Basri and try to imitate him, emulate what he did. So they get along very well. The last, of course, is the Hanbali school, which, as we've said, is the most conservative and tradition-based school of law. Now, they will have a tricky relationship with Sufism, and even to this day, they do. 
At first, many Hanbali leaders opposed Sufism, and it was mostly because of their practices rather than their beliefs. As you remember, Sufis are aiming for a higher level devotion to God that goes beyond just following rules. So we had these early Sufis who were doing things that went against social convention, and their, their idea was that they were shooting for this higher level. So they, for example, allowed mixing of the sexes. They had female leaders. They allowed mixing of people of different ages, like a younger person teaching an older person. And these upset the social rules that the Hanbalis valued. In fact, one Hanbali preacher named Ghulam Khalil, uh, today he is seen as a villain and anything you read about him is very negative. But around the year 900, this was a very powerful man in the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, just to give you an idea of how much the power begins to crumble and how complicated the politics has gotten by this point, if you remember, we had very powerful central caliphs uh, in the middle of the 800s, like al-Ma'mun. By 900, the caliph himself had actually become very weak. So Ghulam Khalil, he has power behind the scenes because he is very close to the mother of the regent of the caliph. And that is how he is able to exert his backdoor power. Well, he convinces the caliph, again through the mother, to launch another inquisition or another mehna. And this one is specifically against Sufis. And specifically what he's going after is this teaching of ishaq, which again was this powerful, passionate, carnal love for God rather than hub. And just like the Mutazilite inquisition where people had to come in and swear that they believed that the Quran was created, Again, Sufis were dragged in and, and forced to reject this idea of Ishaq. Uh, specifically, Anuri, he was one who was targeted with this. Well, here the legends are very hard to separate from the actual history. The legends tell that Anuri's faith and piety was so overwhelming that the executioners repented and immediately converted to his way of being. And when people saw this, it just won over the, the caliph and uh, eventually they turned against Ghulam Khalil. Well, this makes a good story, but what is far more likely is the balance of power behind the scenes shifted, as it often did. Uh, Ghulam's connection to power was very indirect anyway. And so people like Anuri were popular, and the caliph turned to his side. Well, some of the more outlandish Sufis were purged, but eventually the Hanbalis began to realize that Sufis were good allies, because the Hanbalis' main enemies were the Mutazilites. And this again is the story of, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or at least we'll make it that way. Now, Today, some sub-schools of Hanbali law, and particularly the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia, have very strong reservations against Sufism. And over the years, they've lightened up a bit and are willing to allow some practices of Sufism, but this is a very tenuous relationship. Anyway, the point here is you don't have to remember all these shifting alignments. What we're really trying to see is that Sufism fits into a certain niche in Islam. 
and how that niche aligns with the others, like theology, law, philosophy. It's not automatic. It's based on how alliances and interests line up, and really the ideology and the ideas are often crafted after the fact to fit with that. And the real boon for this relationship is once the Motazilites become the common enemy and really become the scapegoat, then this is going to elevate Sufism to a very comfortable position alongside Islamic law. But in a more general sense, we could say that Sufism really does fit a basic social need that people have from religion. So, yes, they do want a theology and something to believe in. They do want social institutions like the mosque. And Islamic law is very necessary to run society. But this emotional, personal connection to your religion and eventually to your God, this is also important to people. And so Sufism fits a niche, and eventually schools of Islamic law and Sufi brotherhoods learn to work together. Now, in fact, Sufism, because it occupies a very distinct niche and has some really powerful social roots, is going to play some interesting roles throughout history, some surprising roles. Different factions will ally with Sufis in surprising ways when necessary. For example, in the revolutions against European colonialism in North Africa, particularly in the 19th and early 20th centuries, Sufi leaders become extremely important. This is because they have wide popular appeal. And so while the colonizers can control what's going on in the mosques, and the French do this uh, very strictly, they have a much harder time controlling these informal Sufi brotherhoods that meet out in the general population and have a strong influence over the middle class. So some of the leading guerrilla fighters are Sufi leaders. Now even today, many Muslim governments actively seek the support of Sufi brotherhoods as a means of combating extremism and violent radical groups. In fact, it's quite common to use Sufis to go into the prisons, which is a really a breeding ground for uh, terrorists, to try and preach a different type of Islam there. But there's yet another reason for the growth of influence of Sufis. At the time we're discussing, the third century of Islam, the height of Abbasid power, Islam is really everything, as we've discussed. It's an empire. It has government. It has armies. It has an economy. It has mosques. It has a legal system. And all these components fit together into one piece. Well, as Islamic power begins to decline, the Islamic community is going to lose different aspects of this. It's going to lose much of its political power. It's going to lose many of its governments. It's going to lose much of its legal power as other entities come in, establish colonial rule, and replace that. And so pieces of this whole begin to disappear or begin to get weakened. Well, Sufism which occupies such a powerful social role, is one that is still left even during times of colonialism, and so it grows extremely in power. 
In any case, Sufism is a very important aspect of Islam and one that we have to consider in a total picture alongside Islamic law, alongside community rituals and organizations. So when we get this picture of Islam, as being very organized, of everything happening in unison, and it seems somewhat impersonal, we should never forget the other side of this, which is represented by Sufism. Again, it's one large picture, and I hope that that's something that we will keep in mind as we go forward. Again, I thank you very much for your kind attention. I thank you very much for your kind comments and ratings, and I hope to see you again in the future. Thank you very much. Shukran Jazilin wa ma salama.